come to the scripture, let me ask you please to f- turn to 1 Timothy in chapter 6, please. 1 Timothy in chapter 6. And once you've found that, let me, let me pray. Let me pray, please. Father in heaven, we now come to the scripture and I ask that you would uh, give us grace. Grace to hear, grace to understand, grace to think, grace to believe grace to put into practice. Father, we confess that there are times we really don't want to be here, we really want to hear it, we really don't want to think about it, uh, and we'd rather just sort of veg and think about other things. Uh, Father, that's true for us all at times, and so I pray that you would work in this next bit of time to overcome that tendency in me, in us, and that, Father, we would engage with you not keep you at arm's length, not think, oh, I know all this, not think, I don't need any of this, not think, if I got this, my life would change and I wouldn't like that. So, Father, please enable us to engage with you. So engage with us. Holy Spirit, overcome any resistance that we might have to your word and to faith and help us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy in chapter 6, please, I want to read... Uh, verses 3 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3 through 10. Hear the word of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gains. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the, the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. I want, God will help us, and I trust he will, to draw attention to this verse 6. You might suspect, given the theme of our service thus far, just as we've been singing and praying and talking and all of that. I trust you know it's all connected, what we're doing. And uh, this verse 6, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now the question is the contextual question, really. The question is, why does Paul ask, why does Paul make that statement here? Why doesn't he say something else? Why does he say, but godliness with contentment is great gain? The reason is that there are those who are teaching in the church in Ephesus, this church where Timothy pastors, the church in Ephesus, there are those who are teaching that godliness really brings financial gain. Now that shouldn't surprise us if we know anything about Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. You might remember from Acts chapter 19, we read of the church being founded in Ephesus. Paul, this apostle, is traveling and he finds himself in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus. And, and what we find in Ephesus is this great, huge temple to the 
goddess Diana. And there are those who make their living off that temple. Because people from all over would come to Ephesus to go to that pagan temple. And so there were those there, silversmiths most particularly, who made little, probably little statues of Diana. And people could take and put them on the dashboard of their chariot. And, and there they would be, right? Um, I'm so clever. Uh, there they would be. Uh, uh, and they would make them and sell them. And you remember that when Paul came, he began to preach. And people began to believe in Jesus. And when they began to believe in Jesus, they realized that Christians, believers in Jesus, don't need trinkets. There wasn't any good substitute for that in their lives. They couldn't make something that these believers would buy and say, I've got to have this, and this is what's necessary for me in order to follow up to Jesus. We, just, we don't need trinkets. We don't need these things. And so, 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 so the silversmiths and the silversmiths union, no doubt, got together, and, and they said, we're in trouble because if this Christianity thing takes over, this belief in Jesus thing takes over, this what Paul is preaching thing takes over, we're out of business. Nobody's going to buy our little trinkets anymore. And so we need to deal with this. And so they began to chant, long live the goddess Diana, the temple of Diana is great and all of that. And so they got these people to come against Paul. And so it shouldn't surprise us that even as the church begins to grab root in, in Ephesus, that there's still this tendency to think that godliness is a financial gain. It's something that we're going to make money off of, either as teachers or as followers of this Jesus. Cultures have embedded within them sins. And even when Christianity shows up and even when people begin to believe in Jesus, those are still tendencies for us. We know that. We know the, 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 the sin embedded in our own culture and it's there, whether it's this sin of desiring more money, which is idolatry, really, that it has its roots in security or prestige or power. We know that sin, we know the sexual sin that's embedded within the context of our culture. And even when people come to faith in Christ, that can be a difficult one to shake, a difficult one to turn away from. We know all of that. We know all those sins that are embedded in culture. And this was one there. So it shouldn't surprise us that even as the church began to take root, that there were those who would latch onto this faith and begin to teach that this faith in Jesus would lead to godliness. And that way they could make money off of that as well. And Paul says, that isn't true. But it's interesting that Paul only disagrees, really, with half of this statement. He doesn't disagree at all that there's great gain in godliness. What he disagrees with is that the gain from godliness is financial. For Paul, the gain that comes from knowing Christ, from being godly, isn't financial, but it leads ultimately to contentment. Leads ultimately to contentment. So, so Paul comes and, and, he, and, he, and he tells Timothy that you need to deal with this false teaching that's there. Here's the true teaching, this teaching that accords with godliness, this teaching that brings godliness, and this godliness that ultimately brings, brings contentment. Uh, no surprise, again, that there are false teachers in Ephesus, no matter what they're teaching, because Paul says that, that the, the, the church is a pillar and support of the truth. That is, we've been entrusted as the church of Jesus Christ with the truth, with the gospel, not because we are anything of ourselves, but God is something of himself, and he's made us to be the ones through whom he works. These folks that he calls out to be his, this church. And so he gives us the gospel and he entrusts, entrusts us with us. 
with it. And he says, guard it and teach it and believe it and live it and proclaim it. And that's what we're to do, you see. And so Paul says, anytime there are false teachers, Timothy, the church needs to deal with that. And the church needs to deal with that because what we believe, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, therefore, what we believe about salvation through faith in Christ is everything. If we get that wrong, then we have a false faith. Worse than that, we have a faith that's in a false object, something that can't deliver on this salvation. There are those, you know, who say it really doesn't matter all that much if what we believe is true, as long as it helps us live a good life. I mean, even if this Jesus thing isn't true, some people say, well, at least I've learned to be a forgiving, loving, kind, compassionate person. And of course, all that's nonsense. If all of this isn't true, then we're doing everything for the wrong reason. And maybe there's something else more right. So that's really the issue. And Paul says, this is what is right, this is what is true, teach it, keep it pure, make sure that people are believing this, because if they don't, then they'll be plunged really into ruin. That's how significant it is, that's how important it is that we get and keep this gospel right. So Paul says, uh, make sure you deal with these, with, these false, with these false teachers. And he says, notice this, verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness. See, he says, listen, right teaching about Jesus accords with or is consistent with or leads to godliness. Again, no surprise for us. You might remember back in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He says, the aim of our charge, that is our charge, to keep the gospel true and keep the gospel guarded, if you will, and make sure it's pure, this gospel. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's godliness, you see. He says, he says the aim of our charge, the reason we want you to make sure this gospel is, is pure and true and the very one that's been handed down through Jesus, by Jesus, through the apostles, uh, the reason we want to to make sure that, that you get it right is because it leads to love. It leads to godliness. That's crucial. In, in fact, when Peter writes, he writes something very similar in Second Peter in chapter 1 and uh, in verse 3. Peter writes, he says, His divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You know, Peter says the same thing. He says, listen, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, and it comes through knowing God, through Jesus. And that we know because of the great and precious promises he's given to us. And this leads to godliness as we know God. And so right teaching is always to lead to godliness. It isn't just so we know more. It isn't so we can pass a multiple choice test. It isn't because we can impress people. 
It's so that we become those who are, in fact, godly. Now, the question is, what, what does that mean, this word godly? Now, we talked about this way back in chapter 4, which was like a year ago, it seems. Chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says that godliness is a value both for this life and the life to come. And you remember there we said that godliness is a big word. That it is, it's a word that's very comprehensive. It includes a great deal. Normally when we think of godliness, we think of it as I've just described it, as our behavior. I just mentioned that the right teaching is to lead to love. That it leads us to godliness. And, and that's true, that, 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 that godliness reflects right behavior. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we've been destined to. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Not that we're ever going to be God and have his deity. We never will. But we will, in fact, be conformed to his human image. That is, of this one who lives to glorify God. We won't be deity. I don't think we're ever going to be water walkers. You know, I, I, even on the new earth. I don't anticipate that. It'd be cool if it happens. You can tell me I was wrong. Actually, probably there you can't. <laughs> That'll be nice, won't it? To be in a place where nobody tells you you're wrong. But, 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 but you probably can't there. But, and if you will, I'll probably be happy about it somehow. But uh, I, don't, I just don't, you know, we're not going to be deity. We're always going to be human beings. That's who we are. We're not going to be angels flying around with harps and all of that. We're going to be human beings with bodies on a new earth. That's what the scripture tells us at the end of the day after the return of Christ. And so, so, so we're not going to have his deity, but we will, in the context of his human nature, be conformed to his image that is one who always loves, one who always lives to glorify God and all of that. So, so that's who we're, we're destined to be. That's certainly, certainly godliness. But with the word godly, means more than just our behavior because it refers also to the source from which this behavior comes. It refers also to the source from which this behavior comes. And the source of godliness, you see, is obviously a work of the Spirit of God in us, a transforming of our minds by the Word of God that leads to a devotion to God. See, all of this godliness is to flow from our devotion to God, our love for him. And so you see, it, it comes from really faith. You, you remember this verse I just read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, the aim of our charge is love. That's the end result that we're godly in that sense. If you want to have one word that describes godly behavior, love would be that word. It includes all the other good attributes that we might think of in terms of in terms of forgiveness, in terms of kindness, in terms of joy, in terms of peace, in terms of all of that. It's this love that is, fills us. The aim of our charge is love that issues from, that comes from, and then he makes this list that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, that what begins godliness in us is this faith in Jesus. Because it's through faith in Jesus that we're reconciled to God. And that reconciliation with God thus brings that transformation. It brings the good conscience, that conscience that approves of that which is right. It brings a pure heart that says, yes, my desire is to love and not be selfish. And so it's that sincere faith in Jesus, you see, that brings reconciliation to God, that brings the transformation to us. 
And it's that sincere faith in Jesus that says, I recognize the love of God for me, for us, in Jesus. I recognize the love of God for me, for us, in Jesus. And when we recognize that, we realize that when he died, that gracious, loving sacrifice of himself for us, when he died, that was an expression of his love for us. And there's something about that that is to to grip us. Do you remember Jesus, on one occasion, went to the house of a Pharisee, one who was seemed to be, again, wealthy. A Pharisee religious leader had a certain measure of pride in all of that and who he was, no doubt. But Jesus went to his house. And you remember the story. A woman came, and she was known as a sinner. Now, when we read that in Scripture, it doesn't mean that the rest of us aren't sinners. It just, it just means that she had that title. She was a sinner. People knew her life. And compared to everybody else, she was one who would be deemed a sinner, one who wouldn't even have anything at all to to commend herself to other people, let alone to God. And this woman comes and she begins, as Jesus is at table, she begins to to wash his feet with her tears and to dry with her hair. And she has this expensive bottle of perfume and she opens it and she puts it on him and, and anoints him, if you will, with it, cleanses him with it, you know, purifies and all of that. That's what the perfume was to do. And Simon sees this, and he's aghast that Jesus would let such a woman touch him. And he basically says, if you knew who she was, you must not know who she is, but if you knew who she was, you wouldn't let her come close to you. And, 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 and Jesus tells a story to Simon. He said, what about this? He said, what if you knew a man who owed another man uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars? And then you knew another man who just owed him a few thousand dollars. And, and let's say that that man forgave them both. Who would love him more? And Simon said, well, this is easy. It's the one who is forgiven the most. And Jesus said, yes. See, this woman came and loved me like she did because she knows that she's forgiven much. Those who are forgiven little love little. The, the, the jab there, of course, was to Simon, basically saying, Simon, you haven't loved me at all. You didn't wash my feet when I came in. You didn't annoy me. You didn't do any of that for me. You didn't treat me like you would treat a normal house guest at all. You just sort of missed all of that. You haven't loved me at all. That tells me you don't get who I am. That tells me you don't understand your need of forgiveness. You don't understand what I'm here to do. She does. She has been forgiven much and gets it. And once she knows that, she loves much. And the message to us is this, that if we really get how much we've been forgiven then we should really love Jesus much. Let's face it. We're not always conscious of that. We don't always think like that. That's, again, why we get together every Sunday to think that through again, to make sure it's on our minds and we really get the fact that we have been forgiven. Because the truth of the matter is, we look way more like Simon than we look like that woman. And Simon didn't look that bad. She looked horrible. And yet we're like her, not like him. And yet we think ourselves like him and not like her. So we forget that we've been forgiven much and that we're really indebted by love to Christ. 
And once we get that, then our love grows and increases. And as it grows and increases, our devotion to God increases. And as our devotion to God increases, that springs forth a desire to know him, to think his thoughts after him, to desire to do his will. And then you see, as that plays out in our lives, that's godliness. And so Paul is saying the teaching that we do is the lead to that. That, that, that. That's what we should ultimately see. Do we see it perfectly? Obviously not. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we repent. That's why we ask God to help us by way of his spirit. But, but you see, growth for us also includes that time of confession. Growth for us also includes our, our, our knowing when we sin, when we fail. I always told my kids as they were growing up and, and tell myself as well, if I could tell you this. That when the time between the time we sin and realize it, the time between the time we sin and actually confess it, as that time diminishes, that's spiritual growth. (laughs) That's saying, oh yes, I really get it. And then as our gratefulness increases because of the forgiveness that we've received in Christ, that's spiritual growth. And you see that, that is to to compel us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 this, and again, this is, the outflowing, the very source of godliness. He says, for the love of Christ compels us or controls us because we've concluded that this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so you see, that's it, isn't it? We're to get that. When I find myself, in sin and not living a godly life I ask myself Bill do you get it do you understand this one who died for you do you love much that's a back rehearsal going through the gospel again going through who I am again going through all that Christ has done for me again and that you see then increases this source out of which godliness is to flow because you see it isn't a legalism we're not saying that you have to be good so that you can earn salvation it isn't just a moralism to say all that matters is that you just be better than average and and and, and do uh, do all these good things it isn't that that isn't the end result the, what we're after is what it issues from to make certain that the good that we do issues from devotion to god so in our youth ministry we tell our parents Our goal isn't just to give you a good kid. Our goal in our youth ministry and our children's ministry isn't just to give you a good kid. It's not just to to, to give you a kid that obeys and a a kid that's socially acceptable and all of that. That's great. We want that to happen. But we want that to happen because they love Christ. We want to make sure that that issues from a devotion to God. I mean, let's face it, there are lots of good people, nice people out there, people who do great things. But they're not reconciled to God. It doesn't issue from a devotion to God that comes because of knowing Christ, that comes because of loving Christ, because they know, know that they've been loved by Christ and forgiven by Him. It doesn't flow from that. And so ultimately leads to destruction. So what we're after for our kids, for all of us, is that that which we do, this godly behavior, springs from, issues from, 
a devotion to God. That's why we keep coming back to the gospel. We keep coming back to what Christ has done. We keep reaffirming that in our own lives so that this love for Christ continues to flame. And so Paul says this sound teaching accords with godliness and this godliness will lead to a contentment. Contentment with circumstances because you have a contentment with God because you trust him. Now of these others, Paul says, uh, notice, now I better get back to 1 Timothy. Paul says this, he says that those who teach falsely that godliness is a means of financial gain says that uh, they're conceited and understand nothing. That's pretty harsh language. But he's saying they're conceited in the sense because they won't concede to the truth of Scripture. They've got their own twist. They've got their own spin. They've got their own thing. And they're emphasizing this. And they're saying, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Follow after me. Now, interestingly, this conceit, this arrogance and understanding nothing doesn't always come across as, as real arrogance. It can come across as a humility. Now, we, we all know the television preachers and the YouTube things and all of that of, of those in our culture who, who clearly seem to be in their ministries after money. My favorite one was one TV preacher who said, I'm taking an offering, think of a certain amount that you can send to me and then double it. <laughs> and then know that your blessings will be doubled as well. <sighs> it's horrible. And then those that are in it as presumed followers of Jesus for financial gain. Not so much in this present generation, certainly not in Lawrence, but there's still there's certain parts of the country where if you want to be mayor, if you want to be governor, if you want to be senator, if you want to be in the House of Representatives, if you want to have a successful business, you better be a member of First Something in your community, whether it's First Presbyterian or First Baptist or First Methodist or First Something. You need to be involved in the church because if you're not, nobody will trust you. So people get involved in the church. And those of you who have lived in certain parts of the country where that's true, you know that. You know that everybody claims to be a follower of Jesus. Everybody claims to be a Christian. Everybody's a member of a church somewhere. Why? Because it's worth their while. There's no culture. There's no society. There's no business without it. And so they do that. One of the things I love about Lawrence is that people are at least genuine very often about their faith in Jesus. You show up to a real church, you're a Christian by and large in this town. You know, you don't have to worry about that. Um, it's always nice to have one thing not to worry about. But, but that's, 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 I think, a healthy thing about our community. That when we talk to people about Jesus, they'll line up and, and you know where they stand. Whereas in other parts of the country, you can talk about Jesus and think somebody's a believer and then find out they really aren't. But, but, but yet they know all the lingo and all the talk and all of that. But you see, some come across with a certain humility. And I would say this is true mostly in our day that there are those who say, who am I to say that I can make any definitive statements really about God? Now that sounds very humble and not arrogant and conceited. But the truth of the matter is, the conceit is that I'm not willing to submit to that which the, tr the scripture does say definitively about God and definitive, definitive, uh, definitively about Jesus. There are others who say, who am I to say who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Well, of course, none of us get to decide that. 
But that doesn't mean there isn't anything to think about and anything to say about how we attain one and escape the other. There are those who say, who am I to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Well, of course, none of us is the one to say that, but the scripture does. Jesus did. The gospel does. That's why we say it. And so we can't bail out of that simply because it makes some uncomfortable. Others would say, who am I to say that, that, that the way the Bible describes uh, sexual intimacy and sexual relations is the only way? And the answer is, well, we're not the ones to say that, but the scripture does. Thus, we need to submit to that. And so you see there's this humility that comes across as saying, I'm trying not to impose, I'm trying not to, 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 to act as if I know everything. Uh, but yet on the other hand, it's the same conceit and the same arrogance because it says I'm not willing to submit to that which is true in the scripture. So we must be careful. Conceit and arrogance doesn't always come across uh, as, as being flamboyant or, or even being distasteful. Very nice people can have this same conceit and arrogance. For any of us, when we didn't submit to the gospel of Christ, it was conceit and arrogance. Because we were saying, I have another way. I have my way. My way is right. Your way is wrong. The Bible's way is wrong. Therefore, that's conceit and arrogance. Even though that's a hard thing to say. And he says, listen, when they uh, preach and teach, it, it produces that which is unhealthy. It produces envy. And, and, and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and friction among people and all that because they're, they're fighting always uh, about words. Now realize words are important. And realize there are certain good controversies even in the life of the church. But there's a way to deal with that. I mean, there's some unresolved controversies in the church. Obviously, we still debate things like baptism. We still debate things like spiritual gifts. We still debate things like the role of women in the church. We still debate things like uh, church government. We still debate things uh, about predestination and election. We still debate things about eschatology. But you see, when, when anyone takes those items and makes a whole church around them, we have to be very careful. Because then dissension begins. And then the teacher has to distance himself from everybody else. He has to have a certain amount of uniqueness, you see, in order for people to keep following him, keep paying him, keep following him. And so, so there that, 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 that envy comes where I can't let you go. I can't, I mean, the teacher can't let you go to another place, can't let you listen to another one because they'll get it different and then you'll lose a following, if you will. And then there's dissension that comes because then we have to become argumentative. And then slander becomes because arguments never really win the day. We have to then attack character. And then we begin to slander. And then there's evil suspicions everywhere. No one trusts anyone. So even in the midst of our disagreements, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, don't be quarrelsome. But be gracious, even to those who disagree with you. So, so, so our church has this motto, our denomination has this motto, it's not unique to us, that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in everything, charity. Make sure that we continue to love each other, even in the midst of disagreements, even for those who aren't believers, to continue to love them, even in the midst of all this. So, so our teaching leads to love. It doesn't lead to dissension. It doesn't lead to envy. It doesn't lead to slander. It doesn't lead to these things of evil suspicion, or at least that's our hope. So Paul says, but godliness is great gain when it's accompanied by, when it leads to, when it's according with contentment. 
Why? Why is contentment so important in this whole godliness thing? Why is, is that ultimately the sign that it's real godliness, that there's really great gain here? Well, well, for those who believe that it was an increase in financial well-being that, that was the gain of godliness, Paul says, that'll never work. It fails you in two ways. In fact, these two ways that it fails you are ways that are devastating to eternal life. First of all, he says, financial gain fails you. It's of no value when you die. You brought nothing with you. Materially, you take nothing with you when you die. That is just simply true. No matter how much money, wealth you have, when you die, you leave it. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, and then you leave it to people who are probably going to misspend it. Right? And not only that, they'll never say thanks to you after about two years. You know, it won't take long. They'll forget you. They'll don't think they're going to remember you because of that. It just won't help you when you die. It certainly has value in the course of our lives. We don't want to discount that, discredit that, and so forth and so on. But the truth of the matter is when you die, it will fail you. But the second failure is it won't really help you in your life to gain ultimately that which is important for you, which is reconciliation with God, which is knowing God. The author of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, if you love money, you'll never be satisfied with it. You will never be satisfied with it. It will always disappoint you. You will always want more. There's always somebody there who has something you don't have, and, and that will always drive you crazy. So, so, so it can't satisfy you then. But Paul very bluntly says this, verse 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harm, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now that little expression, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, has often been misquoted. It's generally or often quoted, money is the root of all evil. That isn't what it says. It says that the love of money, which is idolatry, the love of money, which is idolatry. And normally the love of money isn't, it's sort of the presenting idol, but it's not the base idol or the, the, the deep idol. The deep idol that leads to a love of money is, is normally the idolatry of the need for security that you can't trust God with. The need for power that you can't trust God with. The need for prestige that you can't trust God with. You see, that's what idolatry is. It always ends in that you can't trust God with. You see, we're, we're to love him and him only. You realize that the first commandment and the tenth commandment kind of make nice little bookends. The first commandment is don't have any other gods before me. The tenth commandment is don't covet. That is, don't want any other gods before me. To follow me and to follow me only. Don't find your security. Don't find your contentment. Don't find your peace. Don't find... Your life and anything but me, God says. And so he says, listen, if you love money, then it is a root, not the root, but a root, not of evil, but of all kinds of evil. It'll lead you to all kinds of evil. It'll lead you to destroy. It'll lead you to destruction. And here Paul doesn't mean financial destruction. In fact, for those who love money, they may end up very rich. 
the destruction, for those who love money, they could be destroyed as well, financially, but, but that's not his point. The love of money leads to spiritual destruction, spiritual ruin. Because as Jesus said, you may gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. So Paul says it'll fail you, this love of, this love of money. But he says real godliness won't lead you to that. Real godliness will lead you to a devotion to God. Real godliness will lead you to contentment because real godliness means you trust God, that you know him, that you're secure in him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is for the sake of his own name. He leads me into righteous places so that his name would not only be known, but that his name would be proven in my life sufficient. What he's doing. I'll lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. He says, even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't be afraid. My rod and my staff, they will comfort you. That is, in the midst of the worst, I'll be with you. My rod will beat off anything that comes against you. My staff will pull you out of anything that you need pulled out of. My rod and my staff, they will comfort me. In fact, if your enemies are round about you, I will prepare a table and you will sit there in the midst of your enemies and feast. Prepare a table before you, before you in the presence of your enemies. I'll anoint your head with oil when you're too hot, when you've been bruised when you've been hurt, when you need refreshment, I'll anoint your head with oil. Because you see, your cup will overflow. In fact, at your heels all the time, whether you know it or not, will be goodness and mercy. They'll follow you all the days of your life. And trust me, you will dwell in my house forever. You see, that is the end result of godliness, to believe that, to know that. Prophet Isaiah, in giving comfort to the Israelites, saying, do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord our God is an everlasting God? He says, didn't anybody ever tell you that? Don't you know that, Israel? He says that to us. Many days I will in the midst of something. And God says, not audibly, God says, don't you know me? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Haven't you said? Haven't you preached? It's bad to be a preacher, trust me. <laughs> On a bad day, it's bad to be a preacher. <sighs> Haven't you preached? Don't you know that I'm the everlasting God? The gracious God? The God that gives strength to the weary. Don't you know that? 
Paul writes to the church in Rome, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? What are you worried about? The passage I read from Matthew 6, don't be anxious about anything. Why? Because look around. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Not today. Look at the flowers. They're beautiful. God clothes them. Look at the birds. God feeds them. Don't you think he likes you more? Don't you think he cares for you more? Grab a hold of that, he says. You see, once we get a hold of that, then there's contentment. There's a restful soul. There's peace in the midst of even great difficulty. But you see, it all goes back to the gospel. It all goes back to what Jesus did. Because you see, as we meditate upon, as we think about, as we receive what Jesus did, then our love for him, our trust in him, is to increase. Remember in Philippians in chapter 4, Paul said this. He says, I'm not speaking to you out of want, but realize I've learned to be content in every situation. Now, to me, that's one of the most comforting, comforting expressions in all of the scripture. Paul says, I had to learn it. How did he learn it? Well, he learned it by going into situations where he was discontented. He learned it by going into situations that were over his head. He learned it by going into places where he didn't think he would ever survive. And in the midst of those situations, God delivered him. And he said, oh, yes, I get it now. I have you. You belong to me. I'm in your presence. I can trust you. Thus, I'm safe. Now, I don't know that we ever stop learning. At least I haven't yet. Perhaps you're way ahead of me. If you are, bless you. But, but I keep going through things. You'd think I've been through enough. You'd think I've been through everything by my age. But I haven't. I keep going through things that take me to the end. And I think, how am I ever going to get through this? How am I ever going to survive this? And, and, and I'm one, when that happens to me, I don't know about you, but my stomach tightens up. And I can't sleep. And I toss and turn. Karen annoys me by saying, are you all right? And I keep lying and saying yes. Right? But what brings me back? Got to go back to the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Does he love me? Is he sovereign? Is he good? Is he wise? Are his promises true? can't buy that kind of peace. I can only receive it. And it comes by faith. And so as we look at this table, we remember our Lord Jesus. It was that night that he was betrayed. You remember he was with his disciples and he took bread and he took it in his hands and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples as well. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, what we remember, and all this stuff is this, yes, this is for forgiveness of sins. 
I've been forgiven much. Thus, he must have loved me much. Thus, I'm to love him much. That devotion to God. That godliness. That trust. That contentment. He who is rich became poor so that we, by way of his poverty, might become rich, not financially, spiritually, not materially, eternally, because we've been reconciled to God through Christ. And so we live knowing He's accepted us knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's loving, knowing that he's wise, knowing that he's powerful, knowing that we live in his presence. And he says, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives. The world gives peace by saying, here's more money. But you know that's going to not last. Here's more health. But you know it's not going to last. Here's more friends. But you know it's not going to last. Here's more sales, but you know it's not going to last. He said, I give you my peace, which is my very presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven. And Jesus said that this is his body and blood. We don't believe that it's literally that, but yet it represents his body and blood, but yet he said it like that to remind us that always he is with us. But there's a sense in which around this table he's with us in a way that's different than all that other, all the other times. We can't always know what that means, God. We don't know how exactly that's true, but we trust you. We realize as we've been worshiping, we realize that as we come to this table, that we're in the very presence of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet us here. Many of us come with all kinds of anxieties, worries and fears, discontentments, because of our bodies, because of our financial situation, because of relationships, because of all kinds of things. Give us peace. Enable us to be content with all that you have given to us and all that you have done for us and all that you are even in us. So as we come to this table, I pray, God, that our faith would increase our trust would grow. Our devotion to you would increase so that we would know contentment with you. Please work that in us. Take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus to receive from him. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.